So let's pray and then we'll dive into God's word. God, you are so good and so gracious and I'm so thankful for your provision in this last year, Lord. And and we just think about simple infrastructures like, like an elevator and it's just a simple way for us as people come through the door to demonstrate to them that we, we love them, that we care for them, that they're important to you, they're important to us. And Lord, as we gather today and we open your word, we know, Lord, that your word is power. Lord, as I get up here every week, my goal is to step into the background and put your word in the forefront and allow it to speak clearly to, to us. We pray as we study your word that it would move us, that it would change us, Lord, that you'd speak through it. In your name we pray. Amen. We're in this series called Greater Than, and we're looking at who Jesus is. And the Gnostics, uh, there was a false theology had entered into uh, Colossae and, and many other places that basically said that the body is bad, material is bad, spiritual things are good. And because of that, they had either rejected Jesus' humanity or there was a lot of different forms of Gnosticism. Many of them would say that he wasn't enough, that you needed something more. You needed this deeper spiritual experience. You needed this fullness. But in Colossians, Paul argues that, that Jesus is greater than anything that Gnosticism or legalism or any other kind of religion can offer. He also says that a life with Jesus is greater than, it's fuller than, it's complete in a way that can't happen without Jesus. And so last week we started reading a poem that really is the centerpiece of this book. And we read, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And so last week, we, after reading that, we asked two questions. First, we said, who is in first? If God is supreme over all things, if he's sovereign over all things, is he first in every area of your life, in your marriage, at your job, in the way you spend your free time? Is Jesus first? And then we asked, do you look like Jesus? When other people interact with you, do they see Jesus through your love, through your actions, through your grace? But we didn't ask the question last week that that sometimes comes out of a, a, a poem like that. If God is truly sovereign over all things, then why do bad things happen? Why did I lose my loved one? Why did I get that cancer diagnosis last week? Why, why, why? All around us is the evidence of the brokenness of our world. We see it. Every day. Last weekend when I led a funeral for my dear friend here at North Park, and then the next day went to a funeral of a dear friend in Lowell, even though both of those friends were older and there was a sense of joy because they were with the Savior, there was a lot of tears because we loved them. We'll miss them. 
It was another sign of the brokenness of this world. My sister and brother-in-law are in Poland right now, and um, their kids went with them for a week ministering to refugees from Ukraine in the midst of the war. Most of the people they minister to are women and children whose husbands are either in Ukraine fighting right now or they were fighting. And they are trying to comfort these refugees who have lost their husbands, their fathers, their grandfathers, their brothers to a senseless war over land. And many of them are asking the question, why, God? If you are truly sovereign, why? When we look around the globe, we see wars, famines, natural disasters, and multiple evidences of the broken world. When you look at your life, you see evidence of brokenness, broken relationships, loss of loved ones, sickness, cancer, financial struggles, anything in between. We all experience this brokenness. And so you may find yourself asking, God, are you really sovereign? Do you really care? We just sung, for God so loved, do you really love? And I think that the second half of this poem in Colossians 1 helps us to answer that question. Even as we are in the midst of worry, we know that God will restore all things. That He will heal that which is broken. And that He offers eternal life to all who believe. Let's start in Colossians 1.19 for today. For God was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish, and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So this poem builds on what we looked at last week and and adds to it. It begins in verse 19 and says God was, was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in Him. Again, the Gnostics taught about this separate fullness, this Greek word. They used it. So Paul specifically, strategically chose that word as a dig on them to say what you're saying is wrong. There's not this higher spiritual experience that you need to seek. Instead, fullness can be found in Jesus Christ. Spiritual fullness is found in Him because He was fully human and fully divine. He puts it this way in Colossians 2. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have, who, who have been brought to fullness. So what he's saying is, Jesus is fully God, fully man, fully divine. And yet He also offers this fullness to us. We can be brought into fullness because of Jesus. There's not some deeper spiritual experience like the Gnostics were saying that you have to find. It can all be found in Jesus. Last week we said if you want to know who God is, look 
at Jesus. Fully God, fully sovereign, and our only source of true peace and satisfaction. For God was pleased to have allness, all His fullness dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Now in this poem there's going to be two phrases, two things that that have been used by people throughout the years to teach stuff that, that we don't believe. And they've looked at those words and they said, this means this. And so when you're looking at this, Jesus is going to reconcile to himself all things that may cause you to ask the question, does that mean everybody eventually will be saved? Is this teaching universal salvation or also called universalism the belief that everyone's going to be saved and with books like love wins universalism has crept into our contemporary christian society and many in america would say there are many different ways to god all these different paths and as long as you're on one of the paths you're good but anytime you see something in a verse that doesn't seem to click with some of the other passages you have to ask yourself okay is that what it truly means and one of the helpful tools to do that is a circles of context. So whenever we're trying to figure out what a, a verse means, it's really important that we try to figure out in this context. And so what we do is first we look at what's the surrounding context of the verse. And then we look at the paragraph. What's the paragraph trying to say? And if there's still some confusion, we, we, we go broader and look at the whole book of Colossians. And if it's still further, then we go out and like Paul wrote Colossians, so then we look at Paul's other writings. And then we broaden that out to the rest of the New Testament, and then we include the whole Bible. So we're going to practice that today, a simple exercise in finding out, will all people be saved? What does it mean that Jesus means he'll reconcile all things? Well, first, in Colossians, this phrase, all things, is used five times in surrounding verses, and it's all referring to the created universe. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God created all things. He created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. And every time he created something, it was followed by, it was good. Creation was good. But then in Genesis 3, we have the story of how Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And ate what was probably not an apple. I don't know why they always choose apples for these pictures. But ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They sinned against God. And at that moment, sin entered the world. But sin didn't just affect Adam and Eve. It affected all of creation. The, the ground was cursed because of them. In Romans 8, it says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, for, for God to bring all of His children to Himself, for that final moment where that last child accepts Christ. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage. Right now, even creation is in bondage to decay brought into freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. I've never experienced this, but I've heard the pains of childbirth are bad. <laughs> so creation is groaning. But it's groaning like the pains of childbirth because what happens after the pains of childbirth? Life. A baby. 
And so creation's groaning, longing for that time when Christ is going to restore all things. The Old Testament talks about this concept as shalom, peace, that God will restore his shalom. Now, throughout the New Testament, we see this already not yet principle. Like, let's think of peace. We looked a few weeks ago in the Christmas season that Jesus is our peace and that Jesus offers peace. And he offers peace in the moment. But even though he offers peace in the moment, we still experience the brokenness and sin of this world. And so in that moment, God is with us, but we're still going through the hardship. So there's an already peace that God offers. But then this is this eternal peace that God offers where one day there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more struggle. In the same way, the cross, Jesus, provides restoration. We have a... We have been restored as believers in Jesus Christ. God has given us a new life. But in the midst of that restoration, we still look around us and there's brokenness. God, the cross provides reconciliation. The reconciliation just means there's this broken relationship between us and God. And God provides a way for us to be made right. But even though we've been reconciled, if we put our faith in Christ, we will still at times, as it says in Romans 3, push God out of the room. We'll live selfishly. We'll say, God, I got this. We'll push God out of the room. And, and the Bible says that Jesus is standing at the door knocking. And if you open it, he'll come in and restore fellowship. But our sinfulness and our selfishness still impacts us. But God will one day establish his kingdom and creation will be restored. So back to Colossians. What is this all things? Well, I think uh, it may actually be helpful to look at what Paul says here, things on heaven, on earth or in heaven, and what he says in Philippians 2. Go ahead and flip, flip to Philippians 2. Here he says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of Father. This is Paul writing, the same author as Colossians, and he adds this section. Because at the end of days, every single person will have to bow to Jesus whether or not they believe in Jesus and whether or not they have eternal life through him in heaven, everyone will have to bow. So I think that we can say that all things doesn't mean every person ever. And, and if we broaden it out to the rest of Paul's teaching, in Second Thessalonians 1, it teaches that God will eternally punish uh, those that don't know God and obey him. Ephesians 2 says we're saved by grace through faith, so our salvation is based on faith. Romans 10.9 says we're saved by believing in Jesus and professing him as Lord. And so in Paul's teachings and other places, he doesn't teach universalism. Now expand it out to the rest of the Bible. Matthew 8, Jesus talks about those inside the kingdom and those outside the kingdom. Isaiah 66 describes the new heavens and the new earth, and it describes people in the kingdom and people outside that will experience judgment. And in Revelation 20, Satan, the beast, the false prophet, and anyone whose name is not written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the message of the whole of Scripture is salvation through faith in Jesus and condemnation apart from faith in Jesus. The, part, the Bible doesn't teach that everyone's going to be saved no matter what they believe, no matter what they think. 
It teaches that the sovereign Christ, through his death and resurrection, will restore all of creation to himself in the new heavens and new earth, but yet that those that reject it will not get to experience it. In the words of R. Kent Hughes, everything in the universe will be reconciled except that which rejects him. So as we daily experience the consequences of the fall and the brokenness of our world, we can take comfort that God will restore all things and also that God offers that free gift of salvation to every person that lives. It's not based on being a good person. It's not based on doing the right things. Jesus says, just says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus offers fullness. He offers rest. He offers forgiveness. Why does he do that? Because once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Notice the change here from third person to second person. Next slide. Oh, one more. Sorry. You. Once you. At the end of every sermon, I try to uh, give you application points. And Paul, as he's nearing the end of this poem, does something very similar. He makes it personal. Not only is Christ sovereign over all things, the author of salvation and the only hope for salvation, he says, you once were alienated from God. Because of your evil behavior, you were enemies of God. If you ask the average American person, you know, are you going to go to heaven? They say, ah, I'm a good person. Sure. Yeah, I think so. I was talking this week with uh, someone and they said, I've never sinned. I said, you've never sinned? Yeah, never sinned. Have you ever lied? Yeah. You ever disobeyed your parents? Yeah, well, then you sinned. Guess what? You have a two-year-old? That kid's going to sin a lot. It's crazy. You don't have to teach kids how to sin. They just know. They just know. You say no, and it's like, uh-uh. And then they do the opposite thing when you said no. We're all born into sin. But the Greek here, this word alienated, is this powerful word that implies a permanent condition. We were in this permanent condition, alienated from God because of our evil behavior, because of our sin. We were separated from God. (coughs) Sorry. Then one of my favorite words in the Bible. You were separated, you were alienated, you were enemies, but... In spite of this, even though you were alienated, even though you rejected God, even though you went against him, even though you were an enemy, even though you deserved eternal punishment and separation from God, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. This is the second of Paul's two parallel clauses. In verse 20, he said, He reconciled us by making peace through His blood on the cross. Ephesians 2.14 says, Jesus Himself is our peace. And so Jesus offers peace. The second clause in verse 22 says, We're reconciled by Christ's 
physical body. Again, going back to the Gnostics who didn't believe that Christ had a physical body. Paul is saying, look, we're reconciled because of his physical body. Because he was born in Bethlehem. Because he was tired, hungry, thirsty. Because he experienced loss as people he loved died. Because he experienced rejection as one of his 12 closest friends betrayed him. Because he willingly, purposefully head to the cross so that we could be reconciled through his body. See, when Jesus went to the cross, he took on our sin. He took on our enmity. He took on the separation of sin that we experienced, taking on our shame and our guilt and our blame to pay for our sin. In the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is a crazy turn of events. The Son, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the one who created all things, things in heaven and on earth, the one who had power over all authorities, the one who holds all things together, the one who has supremacy over everything, took on a physical body for the sole purpose of dying a brutal, horrific death to pay for the sins that we could not pay for because we are not perfect. So, that one took your place. Romans 5 puts it this way. For if while we were God's enemies, while we were separated, while we were in this broken relationship, we were reconciled. The relationship was restored. Reconciled to Him through death of His Son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Because He rose again. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received reconciliation. In Genesis 3, the relationship was broken, but Jesus, through the cross, restored that relationship if we put our faith and trust in Him. So what did this reconciliation accomplish? Verse 22. But now He has reconciled you to Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation. According to Romans 14, one day we will all stand before God's judgment seat and each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. I only had to go to court for myself one time. Uh, when I was 16, and I've shared the story, but I won't share it in detail, uh, I was involved in a fender bender. And it was totally my fault. Uh, nobody else's fault. And so we went to the judge hoping we wouldn't have our insurance, hoping I wouldn't get any points, hoping we wouldn't pay, pay for an expensive ticket. And uh, I stood before the court, and the judge asked me to present a defense. I could have said, Judge, I got nothing. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I was distracted. I looked over to the right, and I ran into the car. And I had no way to say, you know, I was right in this. I knew I was wrong. And the judge passed down a, a sentence because my parents paid for my insurance. He didn't let that go up, so I got to write a 15,000-word essay on the dangers of unsafe driving. He was a smart judge. But the point was, as I stood before the judge, 
I knew I was guilty. And one day, every one of us is going to stand before the holy and righteous judge. God is going to know all of our sins, all of our mistakes, all the times that we've lied, all the times that we've been selfish, all the times that we've lusted, all the times we responded in anger, all the times we've coveted other stuff, other people's stuff, or other people's relationships. And yet, it says, if we put our faith and trust in Christ, this is how God presents us. Holy. means set apart. Set apart for Him in His sight. Without blemish. Without a single flaw. None of our sin is held on our record. It is wiped clean. And free from accusation, because what's the devil going to do? Didn't you see what Phil did when he was growing up? Didn't you see all that stuff he did? He says, you're free from accusation. The devil's got nothing on you. I paid for that. When Jesus hung on the cross and he said, it is finished, he stand paid in full. Your sin was paid for. There's nothing you can do to pay for it on your own. It was paid by him. Verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Next, next slide here. So when you read that, if you continue in the faith, again, the simple reading begs the question, so then can you lose your salvation if, if you don't continue? Is, is Paul saying that the doctrine of eternal security and perseverance of the saints that we teach at North Park is, is wrong? Uh, no, let's again go to those circles of context. In verse 23, Paul introduces a theme that he will trace throughout the book where he's going to encourage Christians to resist false teachers that are influencing the church and to live according to the gospel. And he warns them of the dangers if they fail, if they fall, if they fall away. He, he tells them, look, faith alone isn't faith that's alone. True faith acts. Or in the words of James, faith without deeds is dead. We're not saved by our works, but true faith works. It impacts how we live our lives. If we truly believe Jesus is who He said He is, then we will continue in faith and hope. When I worked at Wendy's, um, it was always interesting working the, the, the Friday and Saturday night shift and, and talking to some people, and they would lay out their plans for the weekend. And Sometimes those plans would include things that were drastically antithetical to Christianity. And because of little ears in the room, I won't say what some of those things were. And then they talk about how they're going to go to church on Sunday. I'm like, you're doing that and then doing this? I'm like, following Jesus has nothing to do, or doing this has nothing to do with church. I'm like, well, it might have nothing to do with church, but it has something to do with following Jesus. There's the reason you go to church. I read this quote. It says, we who are already holy in status, because we're set aside as holy, we who are already holy in status should become holy in reality. So again, at first reading, this verse looks like it's saying that salvation is dependent on works, but I don't think that's what Paul is saying. The scholar Peter O'Brien paraphrases the idea 
if you stand firm in the faith, and I am sure you will. That's what's kind of implied in the Greek. If you stand firm, and I'm sure you will. So can anyone lose their salvation? No. But can someone profess Christ and not truly be saved? Unfortunately, yes. As a youth pastor, many times I had kids raise their hand and say, yeah, I want to accept Jesus, but then it didn't impact their life at all. 1 John 2.19, John makes this distinction. He says, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. In other words, if they truly were saved, they wouldn't have left the faith. They would have remained firm. They would have continued in their faith, established and firm, They would not move from the hope held out in the gospel because they would have been presented holy, without blemish, free from accusation. So Paul ends his poem with this. This is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the gospel that was heard, the gospel that was proclaimed, Now, the NIV and King James say, to every creature under heaven. And people say, well, did every single creature under heaven hear this gospel? And so some people think Paul's referencing general revelation. You know, Romans talks about uh, all of creation. God, God shows who he is. Psalm 19 talks about this. Could he be talking about future fulfillment where one day people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will accept Christ? Could he be phrasing it this way to emphasize the reconciliation of all things? But I actually think the easiest way is how the ESV and the NASB translate it, that in all creation under heaven. So it's been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So God, this gospel has been proclaimed and every person under creation is held accountable to it. All right, let's look at some application. Anytime we look at the scriptures, we need application. First, God's eternal plan offers hope in the midst of hardship. We asked the question at the beginning, if God is truly sovereign over all things, why does he allow bad stuff to happen? And this is where faith comes in. There have been difficult things I've gone through in my life that God answered the why question later. And I was thankful for that answer. In fact, some of the most difficult times in my life are the things that God has used more than any of the good times. So my biggest failures have been a greater strength for ministry than any of my successes. Going through depression, going through hardship, going through financial struggle, going through marriage struggles, all those things have helped God shaped me to who I am and have, have been for my benefit. But there are other times where things happen and we just go, I don't know why. And God doesn't provide an answer. And that can be hard. But in the midst of that wonder, in the midst of that fear, in the midst of that anxiety, we can know that God will one day restore all things. We can know that as it says in Romans 8, that we can consider our present sufferings as nothing compared to eternity future, compared to what God has in store for us, compared to, as Paul says, the glory that we will be revealed in us. And so then, as we face hardships, as we face trials, then we seek to continue in our faith established 
and firm so that we can have hope when we face those dark days, when we face those difficult moments, when we face those hardships. We can have, as we sing about God's faithfulness and great is thy faithfulness, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Because God's faithfulness is great. He is faithful and He will be faithful. So His eternal plan of restoration can bring hope in the midst of hardship. But also, He offers forgiveness. And that forgiveness can provide motivation to live. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, He presents you holy in His sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. What that means is, There's nobody who's too far gone. There's no sin that's too great. No mistake that's too big. Jesus offers a chance. If you put your faith and trust in Him to be free from blemish, the record wiped clean, an opportunity to spend eternity with Him. I, I use this illustration in, in most funerals that I do, but I don't know if I've used it on a Sunday morning, so I'm going to use it right now. When, when Joshua was just a little kid, um, very young, I don't know if he remembers this, um, I stood at the top of the stairs and I told him, buddy, I, I treat for you if you can get to the top of the stairs without touching the walls or the stairs or the, the banister. If you can come to the top of the steps with me, I'll have a treat. So immediately he tried to cheat because he was only like three. I don't remember how old he was. And then I started coaching him. And I went to the top of the stairs. And I started coaching him until eventually he got the point And he said, Daddy, will you come pick me up and carry me up the stairs? So I went down the stairs. I picked up my son and I carried him to the top of the stairs. And he went and celebrated the treat. And I said, that's what Jesus did. We can't earn our way to heaven. We can't get up the stairs on our own. We can't do enough righteous things, enough good things to somehow balance the scale. God is completely holy. And so God sent His Son to us to provide a way for us to get to Him because we can't get to Him without Jesus. Jesus provided the way through the cross to offer a chance for us to come to Him. And the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And we just sang it this morning. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son down to us that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. And for those, those of us that have received that forgiveness, it provides motivation to live differently because, number three, we get to participate in God's eternal plan. Paul says, this is the gospel that you've heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. We get to serve Jesus. We get to be ambassadors for Jesus. We have the chance to proclaim this reconciliation to the whole world. We have a mandate to go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything Jesus has commanded us. And lo, He is with us always, even to the ends of the earth. So God's eternal plan offers us hope when we face hardship. His forgiveness provides motivation to live for Him. And lastly, 
we have the joy of being, as it says in Ephesians 2.10, His workmanship, created to do good works, which He prepared in advance for us to do. And so church, may we bask in this forgiveness. May we walk away thankful. And may it provide motivation for us to live for Jesus. And if there's anyone here in this room that, that doesn't know Christ, that today you say, today I've been at the bottom of the steps and I've been trying to work my way up and I know I can't get up. And I know God sent His Son Jesus down to save me, to provide a way to get access to God so that one day I will be declared blameless, holy in His sight without blemish, without flaws, that God will forgive every single one of my sins and welcome me into his family, that God will adopt me as his son or daughter, that God will provide eternal life. If that's you today, during this last song, I'm going to be sitting right here by the front chair and I invite you to come up. I want to pray with you. Because God so loved the world, he sent his son to come down the stairs to offer eternal life for all of us. Let's pray. God, you are so gracious and good. And God, I'm so thankful we can bring all our failures, as that song said, that we don't have to be righteous on our own. That we don't earn our way to heaven by doing enough good things, by doing the right religious practices. No, that you offer us salvation. You offer us freedom. That you came down while we were separated from You, while we were enemies, Lord, You came down to die on the cross so that we can have eternal life. Lord, help us to live in thankfulness to that truth, to be changed by it. Lord, if there's anyone here today that, that, that hasn't chosen to follow You and wants to do that, may they make that decision today, the best decision they'll ever make. In Your name we pray, Amen.